Amen. Then Jesus was led uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter said, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our father, we acknowledge that apart from you, there is absolutely no way that we can stand. We come here every Sunday to hear your word so that we can be renewed in the spirits of our minds, so that we can be refreshed in our spirits, so that our hearts can be more shaped to be like yours, so that our minds will be uh, conformed to you, so that we will be transformed into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning as we go through this, this word that we have before us, that you will open our hearts and minds, that you will move me aside, that you will speak to all of us this morning, that we will have a higher view of Christ when we leave than what we had when we came, so that we will worship you through your word, that we will see the, the absolute sinlessness of Christ and his righteousness and how that is what we require and that is what we need to be your children. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't have that, I pray you would lead them to yourself this morning. Lord, lead us all into a renewed heart for you and a transformed into your image. It is in your name we pray, amen. Man, you may be seated. Go ahead and turn in your copy of the word of the Lord this morning to Matthew chapter four. Of course, this is a well-known passage. This is the passage where Christ is uh, facing the temptations of Satan. Of course, Mark tells us that he was, he was facing Satan's temptations the entire time that he was in the wilderness. Uh, what we have here are, are more than likely just kind of three representative temptations that he faced. Uh, we don't really know that for sure, but I can imagine that, that, Christ was, um, that Christ was facing temptation the entire time that he was in the wilderness. In fact, I think it's safe to say that Christ was facing temptation the entire time that he was on this earth because we live in a fallen world and we live in a world that the last thing they wanna see is God's glory in our lives. The last thing they wanna see is God's glory in the community 
The last thing they wanna see is a healthy church that is doing God's work. The last thing they wanna see is God uh, being exalted and being worshiped in the earth. Uh, that is not the world's agenda, but it is our agenda. And as a result, our entire lives, we will face temptation. Our entire lives, we will be uh, people who are at war in our spirits. We will be uh, engaged in spiritual warfare. And when we think of spiritual warfare, we're not talking about swords and guns and, and all of that kind of stuff. We're not talking about heads spinning on the shoulders a thousand miles an hour or something like that, like you see in those silly movies. We're not talking about that. But what we are talking about is a Christian life that is seeking holiness and purity at the same time, fighting their flesh, fighting the world, and fighting the devil. And so... Um, we're going to look at that this morning and how Christ not only became our sinlessness, but we're also going to see some examples of how we can resist that temptation. And one of the things that I want to leave you with this morning as we, as we go through this passage, beloved, my prayer and my purpose this morning is that when we leave here, we will be committed to love the Lord with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our might. That you will see, and I think that we will understand by the time we're done with this text, is that uh, we're coming to the end of the first major section of Matthew. We have seen that Matthew's talking about the arrival of the king and, the, and really the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. And we have seen how the king has been presented to us, how he has, been, uh, he has been proclaimed and he has been coronated as the king of the universe, the king of the world, in a sense, the king of kings. And now we're going to simply ask the question is, is this king going to fight our battles for us? And the answer is yes, he is. And so this is not gonna be the first time that we have seen our Lord attacked in Matthew. We saw him attacked uh, at the very beginning, no sooner than he was born, that uh, the king, it was announced that the king of the Jews was here. And we had King Herod who tried to destroy him humanly, tried to murder him. We saw that in chapter two, and, and we saw that the Lord had divinely protected him. Herod was really a, a puppet king of, of, of Rome. Uh, he wasn't a legitimate king, but he sure liked that title. And so he went around and everybody had to refer to him as the king. But essentially what we saw in that first attack was an imposter king who attempted to murder the true king of Israel. And now, once again, we see the second major attack that is coming up against our Lord. Only this time, the attack is not against his humanity. It is against his deity. Two times Satan will start his temptation by saying, if you are the son of God, make no mistake that that is a direct assault against the deity of Jesus Christ. If you are the son of God, which by the way, we just found out he is in the verse right above this, that's what God had proclaimed to the world. This is my beloved son. And Satan says, oh, really? Let's take this out for a ride. Let's put this to the test. 
And so the first time we saw an imposter king who tries to murder the true king, now we see what is essentially an imposter God trying to attack the true God of the world. The God of this world takes on the true and living God. And I believe this is a fight. I believe this is the most thrilling confrontation in the entire Bible. Satan turns all of his big guns right here because he knows that if he can get Jesus right here, then the battle and the war for all eternity, the war for the souls of men and women and children everywhere, that battle is over if Satan can get him right here. You know, sometimes people say, well, Jesus really didn't face temptation because as God, he cannot sin. That is true. However, let me ask you a question. When you're going up against an army and you've got your greatest enemy before you, do you turn all your little guns toward them? No. You get the biggest guns you got because the bigger your enemy, the bigger your guns. And beloved, Satan is sparing no weapons here. He is going after Jesus in a way that you and I will never experience. And unlike us, Jesus will never feel the relief of giving in. He will never feel the, the relief of, of, of not, he, he will be under constant pressure, under constant temptation to sin. He experiences temptation unlike you and I ever will because we give in way too soon. Jesus never gives in. And so, and he fights our war for us. He fights our battles for us. And so, how do you understand this? A lot of people, um, they have, uh, a lot of times when you hear this preached and they will compare these temptations to First uh, John chapter two, verse 16, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And there's, there's probably a little bit of truth to that. But I really think the best way for us to understand what Jesus is actually being tempted with here is to look at how he responds. Look at the verses that he quotes Look at how he answers them. And what is interesting is that when you look at how Jesus responds to all of these temptations, you will find that every single one of them comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And not only from the book of Deuteronomy, they come specifically from the book of Deuteronomy chapter six through eight. And why is that significant? Well, for two reasons. Number one, and you might wanna go ahead and put your ribbon in Deuteronomy chapter six through eight because we're gonna be kind of flipping back and forth. But why is that significant? Well, first of all, if you look at the history of biblical studies and you see where you know all these people who doubt that uh, the Bible is inspired and all these skeptics, you know, guess which book they actually started out on? They actually started out on Deuteronomy. That was the first book the skeptics started attacking. You think Satan holds a grudge? <laughs> yeah, he does. And so, you know, why Deuteronomy? Well, I think the answer is right here in Matthew chapter four, in all honesty. 
But also the reason why Matthew six through, uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is significant is because this section of Deuteronomy begins with that central command, the Shema of Israel, the command to hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. And what's the next sentence? Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. And this entire section of Deuteronomy is, is controlled by that command. Every chapter we read from Deuteronomy uh, 6 all the way to chapter 11 should be read in light of that command that God is teaching us how we are to love him with all of our hearts, all of our, all of our souls, and all of our strength. And it is in that section that Jesus is pulling from to resist these temptations. I think that's significant. And I think that that teaches us a lot about how to overcome temptation in our life. Because the big question is, when we are tempted to sin, the big question is, who do we love more? Who do we love more? Do we love Christ and his righteousness more? Or do we love our sin more? That's the question we face with every sin that we commit. Every sin we commit is a question of what or who we love. Do we love God or do we love something else? The only way to get rid of a lesser love is to replace it with a greater love. That's the only way. The only way to replace an idol that you worship in your life is to replace it with the true and living God in your heart. Otherwise, you'll just trade one idol for another. You'll just trade one lesser love for another. You might be on a higher deck on the Titanic, but you're still sinking. The boat's still going down. And so the question of this text is, as we start to learn how to live kingdom life through the rest of Matthew, as we start to understand how to live the life of a disciple, the question that we all have to ask is, who are we gonna love? Are we gonna love the king of kings? Or are we gonna love something else? And so our goal this morning, beloved, is that we will love the Lord our God supremely. We must love God supremely. So how do we look at this? Let's look at these three attacks. Why is this so hard for us to do? Because we face these kinds of temptations in our life. And so the first attack we see in uh, verses, first of all, let me just give you a little background. Looking back in Matthew 4, Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we hear that all the time, but let that sink in. Jesus has not had a bite to eat in 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine you have not had a bite to eat in 40 days and 40 nights. Think about this. Let's say this morning, I came up to you guys and I said, church, I've spoken with the deacons about this. I have prayed about this and I believe the Lord is challenging us to seek revival unlike we ever have before. And the way we're gonna do that is by a church-wide fast. And you all agree. 
And so you go home after service today. There's no lunch. There's no Sunday afternoon snack. And you all get back to church tonight, an hour early praying for God to send revival by tonight. And of course I get up and say, no, church doesn't happen yet. We're going fast till Wednesday. So Monday, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Tuesday, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. Wednesday, no breakfast, no lunch. All day long, you're, dear God, send a revival to our church. Or if you don't, at least convince Brother Randy that you have so we can call off this fasting thing. <laughs> and you come to church on Wednesday night. No, church hadn't happened yet. We're going fast through Sunday. So, so Thursday, no food. Saturday, uh, Friday, no food. Saturday, no food. Sunday, you're all here two hours early praying for God to send revival. By the way, you've only gone one week. Jesus has gone 40 days. So you fast another week. That's only 14 days. You fast another week. You're about halfway there. Another week, another week, and, a, and almost a full other week before you reach 40 days. Jesus has not had a bite to eat in 40 days and 40 nights. And by the way, he's not in the comfort of air-conditioned homes. He's in the wilderness of Judea. So you can imagine when Matthew says at the end of this, he was hungry. I think that we all understand what he's talking about. And, and let me tell you something a little bit about fasting. God has designed our bodies. Obviously, I'm an expert at this, but... God has designed our bodies in a time of fast so that the first two or three days, there's an intense hunger. But after the third or fourth day, everybody's a little different here, but the third or fourth day, the hunger actually goes away. And because what's happening is, is that your bodies are now feeding on the fat reserves that you already have stored in your body. And the average person can go about, again, everybody's a little different, but average person can go about 40 days on that. Now, the warning sign that God put in your body that it's time to stop the fast. In other words, your body is about to start eating your organs. And so the warning sign that God has placed in your body to tell you that it is time to break the fast or you are about to die is that the hunger returns. And when it returns, guys, it returns with a fury. It returns with a passion. It returns, it is a hunger unlike you have ever felt before. And that is where Jesus is. He is at that stage of hunger. He is literally at the point of starvation when Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. You think that was tempting for Jesus? Sure it was, sure it was. You say that wouldn't have been tempting for me. Well, of course not. You can't turn stones into bread. You now Satan comes up to me and tells me that. I'm just gonna be like, you idiot. But Jesus can do it. He's being tempted to do things he can do, but only apart from the will of the Father. It says, turn these stones into bread. What is our first temptation, beloved? Our first temptation will be to always put ourselves before God. To always put ourselves before God. And we must resist that temptation. We must resist that temptation. You see, Jesus is in the wilderness. Satan comes up and tempts him. By the way, what was Adam tempted with? Food. Israel in the wilderness, what were they tempted with? Food. 
David, whenever he was fleeing from Saul and had to be refined in the wilderness, what's the very first thing he did? He took bread by lying about it, ended up getting people killed. There's a connection here. You see, Jesus is taking on the experience of Israel as the king. He is, in, he is in conciliation with the people. He is facing temptation just as we face temptation. And he's kind of reliving that experience of not only, of not only Adam, but also of Israel and also of King David. And yet all of them failed, every single one of them. But what about Jesus? In verse, uh, in verse four, he answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Think about that. He is literally starving to death. Within a couple of days, his body is about to start literally eating itself. And yet it is at that point of weakness that Jesus stands absolutely firm, absolutely strong. He stands absolutely secure and he defeats the temptation. Adam literally had the entire world to himself. He had a luscious green garden. God told him, just don't eat from that one tree. Adam couldn't even do that. He had to have the tree. Jesus is in the wilderness. He is in probably one of the most deadest areas of the world. He is literally starving to death. And now Satan comes and tempts him with food. And what does he do? He passes the test. Passes the test. So what does this temptation mean? Look at Deuteronomy chapter eight. He's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. And this is significant because Moses, again, is kind of recounting uh, the experience of Israel. He's, he's reminding them of the lessons that God has taught them. And in Deuteronomy 3, he says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. I want you to understand here that the lessons that that God is teaching them in the wilderness, he's allowing you to go hungry. He's allowing you to feel this pain. He's allowing you to feel all of this. Why? So that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that they may learn that there is something that is more important than their material provisions. That they will understand that worshiping and serving God is more important than even their daily necessities. What does Revelation say about those who endure to the end because they loved the testimony of Christ even more than their lives? You remember Job lost 10 children in one day. 10 children in one day. Never mind all the other stuff. 
He lost 10 children in one day. And yet what does he do? Does he curse God, shake his fist at God and say, God, I'm not gonna believe in you because a God of love would never let this happen to me. No, what does he do? The Bible says he got down on his knees. He worshiped the God of heaven and sinned not with his lips. How? I think we see something of the answer in Job 23, 12. I have esteemed your word even more than my necessary food even more than my daily portion of food. There are more important things than our daily provisions, beloved. There are more important things. John chapter four, verse 34, we were talking about this text in Sunday school today. It goes on after he speaks with the Samaritan woman. Uh, the uh, disciples come up and say, hey, has anyone given him something to eat? I mean, after all, this is Jesus. This is our master. This is our rabbi. Uh, being, uh, for him, being hungry is beneath him. There is no reason why um, our king, our master should be hungry. And what... What does Jesus say in chapter four, verse 34? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, obedience to God is more important than gratifying ourselves. Obedience to God is more important than self-gratification and seeking what we want. Jesus being hungry was where God wanted him at this point. Jesus being hungry, Jesus being where he was, was where was he was there in the will of God at this point. And his physical suffering, beloved, get this, his physical suffering was no excuse to sin. His physical suffering was no excuse to sin. And so Jesus, being hungry, says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word. Let me ask you a question. What are you willing to sin for to get? Or what are you willing to sin for if you don't get it? I ask that question all the time of counselees. I find it wonderfully diagnostic because it tells us oftentimes what we are loving in our hearts more than Jesus Christ. Because if I'm willing to sin to get it or willing to sin if I don't get it, then that means I'm willing. Remember, all temptation is a question of who do we love? All temptation is an outworking, really, of this temptation. Are we going to put ourselves first, or are we going to put God first? And so the first temptation, we need to resist putting ourselves before God. Second temptation, we need to resist putting God to the test. Putting God to the test. Look at verses 5 and 6, 5, 6, and 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, there's a question. Is this a, is this a vision or is, this, is he literally doing this? I don't really think that matters to the text. It says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Ah, Satan is now going to use Jesus's weapon. 
Satan is, is going to quote scripture. I think it's always important to remember that in this temptation, scripture is quoted four times, not three. And not all of them are quoted by Jesus. Satan knows scripture also. In fact, I think Satan knows scripture better than we do. And I think Satan is very good at taking scriptures and helping us learn how to twist them to justify our sin. Does that a lot, doesn't he? Isn't it amazing how holy and righteous we can make ourselves sound when we're disobeying God? You remember when uh, Saul offered the unauthorized sacrifice and Samuel came up and he said, uh, and he said uh, what's going on here? And Saul says, oh, I've killed everyone just like the Lord told me to. And I love Samuel. He's kind of a smart aleck. Uh, what's, what's this bleeding sheep I hear in the background? And Saul, what does he say? Oh, well, I saved the best so that we could sacrifice them to God. So spiritual, so holy, so concerned about God's glory, except for the fact that God told him, kill them all. And isn't it amazing how holy and righteous we can make ourselves sound when we're disobeying God? God knows we're married anyway. Oh, it doesn't matter if we go ahead and move in together. God knows. God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to have joy. Don't ever think that just, yeah, beloved, you can put 316 on a bottle of whiskey. That doesn't make it Christian whiskey. Okay? Don't think you can sanctify sin by quoting a Bible verse. You know how many abusers quote wives submit to your husbands to their wives as they beat them? Don't dare twist scriptures to justify your sin. And that's what Satan is doing here. And ironically, he's really not twisting it that much. Psalm 91 talks, is speaking of the safety of those who take refuge in the Lord. Psalm speaks of one of the greatest blessings we have, that of all the ways that, that the world can harm us, that those who rest in the Lord, those who take refuge in the Lord is safe. But it doesn't mean we go looking for trouble. It doesn't mean that we go looking for ways and forcing God's hand to protect us. He don't, he don't play that game. He doesn't play that. And that's exactly what Jesus, uh, excuse me, that's, exa that's exactly what Satan is telling Jesus to do. Okay, Jesus, you wrote this text. Let's put, it to the Let's put it to the test. Throw yourself off the temple and make God save you. How often we do that. We put God to the test and Jesus answers and he says, said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, coming from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six and verse 16. You're gonna have to track with me a little bit here because again, Moses is, is talking about the ways that Israel learned how to love the Lord in the wilderness. And, and he says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Now, what is Massah? What are we talking about there? Well, you gotta track back a little further to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, verses one through seven. 
How did they put Yahweh to the test? Well, this is right after the Lord had given them manna to eat on the ground, quail in the evenings. And now they come, all the congregation of Israel, they're moving through the wilderness by stages and according to the commandment, and they come to a place and they started to quarrel with Moses and say, give us water to drink. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They just got manna from heaven. And yet now they're saying, oh, God's gonna let us die with thirst. And this is the passage where Moses goes to the rock and he hits the rock and, and water comes out from it. But I want you to notice in verse seven that he called the place, uh, that he called the name of the place Masach and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested Yahweh by saying, watch this, is the Lord among us or not? And I think that's the focus of the temptation here. That's the way they're putting the Lord to the test. And that's what, that's what Satan is saying. If you are the son of God, is the father with you or not? Let's try it. Throw yourself off the temple and see if he catches you. What that is doing, what he is tempting Jesus to do is make the father serve him instead of his serving the father. He's making the father answer him on his terms not the Father's terms. And my, how often we do that, don't we? We want God to meet us on our terms. Okay, God, tell me exactly what you want from me, everything you want me to do, everything you want me to go, everywhere you want me to go, and then I'll decide if I wanna follow you or not. But who's the boss there? I am, it makes, how often in our prayer life are we asking God to serve us instead of using our prayers as a means to conform to him and his will? We want him to conform to us. When we test the Lord, we are forcing God and suggesting that he must save us. He must do what we want and my word, we hear this all the time, all the time. Um, there's a teacher, I believe he's dead now. His name was uh, Miles Monroe. He wrote a book and, uh, on prayer. And he said that prayer is giving God legal license to act on the earth. And in an interview with Benny Hinn, he says, God has the power, but we give God permission through our prayers to do something through us so that he can do what he wants to do. And Brother Tony, you mentioned uh, Justin Peters this morning. Uh, I love how Justin answers that. God can do anything he jolly well wants to do. And he is not too interested in your opinion. He's not too interested in your permission. Amen. He's not losing any sleep over that whatsoever. Amen. Who's the boss here? Who's the Lord? And when we put the Lord to the test, we are essentially making ourselves 
the number one in the relationship. We do that often, don't we? I know I do. Beloved, we must come to Christ in faith and part of that faith is coming to him on his terms. Don't ever think that just because you're satisfied with your religion that God is. Don't ever fall into that trap. And so we must not put God to the test. And then finally, we must resist worshiping anything other than God. We must resist putting God's above God. Going back to Matthew 4, Satan then again takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And again, is this literal? Is, this, is he doing this in a vision? Uh, it really doesn't matter to the text. But he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to them, all these I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Do you get the sense that Satan is losing his patience here? Because you notice there's a subtle change, isn't it? The first time he's like, hey, if you're the son of God, hey, if you're the son of God, this time he's like, look, all this I'll give to you if you will just fall down and worship me. You get the sense that he's just kind of losing his patience now. He knows he's losing. He's about to have to hand over his golden fiddle. You guys didn't get that reference? Okay. <laughs> so he knows he's about to lose this battle and there's one last little Hail Mary right here, right now. All of this will be yours if you will just worship me. I'll give you all of this. Look at all this glory. It'll be yours. Which, by the way, is all the glory of the kingdoms going to be the Lord's? Yes. That's something important to understand here, beloved, that what Satan is tempting him with is not a bad thing in and of itself. Do you see that? And so often in our temptations, what we are tempted with in and of themselves will often be good things but they're things that we want to achieve or get the wrong way. We want to sin to get them. We want, we sin if we don't get them. You know, that diagnostic tool there. We, we, they turn into gods in our lives and we begin to worship and serve the gift rather than the giver. And so Satan is losing his patience. I'll give you all of this. Just fall down and worship me. And I think Christ has had enough as well. Because in verse 10, he says, be gone, Satan. That's it. Battle's over. Battle's done. But then he goes on and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Once again, from Deuteronomy 6, 13. There's a slight change of, of there's a slight change of wording here. Because in Deuteronomy, it says, it is Yahweh your God, you shall fear him, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So, so there is a slight changing of wording here from, from fear to worship. And the idea is, is that what we fear is what we worship. In other words, what we fear, what we reverence, what we respect, what we, uh, those things that we uh, are, are working toward, those things are we pursuing, if not 
kept in their place can easily become objects of worship in our lives. Can easily become things that replace God in our lives. And so, and so Jesus says, fear only God. Him only shall you serve. It's a question of sheer allegiance. Who are we going to be faithful to? Well, the answer to that question is gonna be determined upon who are we going to love more? And that's why this whole section of Deuteronomy is controlled by that all-important verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Why? Because that's going to determine who your allegiance is to. That's going to determine ultimately what and who you're gonna be faithful to. That's what's going to determine what your whole life is all about. A very good systematic theology professor told me his name, and you know his name, his name is Russell Moore. He said, theology is not about what you know. It's about who you love. And gentlemen, don't ever forget that. How profound that is. It's not about what we know. It's about who we love. And the question is, who do we love more? So often the things we put above God is not bad in and of themselves, but we're worshiping and serving the gift rather than the giver. And what's so sad about that is that we cannot really appreciate the gift unless we love the giver. Have you ever noticed that? You ever notice that? I've got a, a little picture that uh, on my desk, it's got a, I got a little picture here and I've got a little post-it note that says, hey dad, I love you, sign your lovely daughter. Now I don't know which one it was. I have a suspicion, but I, and she just wrote that and put it on my little iPad stand and, and of course it fell off my iPad stand the other day, so now I gotta keep it on my desk. And it's just a little post-it note can you imagine if I tried to auction that thing? How much would you give for it? Probably not a whole lot, right? But I love it. And it's priceless to me. Why? Because the gift itself is so priceless? Not necessarily, but because I love the giver. I love the one who gave it to me. And beloved, when you love the giver, you will, you will appreciate his gift so much more. You will love the gift so much more because that love is properly ordered. All of the kingdoms, all of the glory of the world belong to Jesus Christ, but he understood that he must love the Father first and foremost. And only then will all the kingdoms and all the glory be rightfully his. Do you see that? And so... You look at these temptations, you look at everything that we've talked about, and I imagine like me, every single one of you are saying, I have failed on all three points. Is there any one of us who've kept them all? I didn't think so. I almost thought your hand was going up there for a second, but you were just adjusting a scarf or something. So now we haven't. 
But you know, the point of this temptation is yes, to give us an example, but the most important point of this temptation is not to be an example for us, but to show us that Christ himself is the one who has resisted these temptations successfully for us. That Christ himself is the one who is our sinlessness. He, he did what Adam couldn't do. He did what Israel couldn't do. He did what David couldn't do. He passed all three tests. And now he is our savior by taking his righteousness and placing it on us when we accept him by faith alone. And by the way, this is not the only time he resisted these temptations. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. He says this to one of his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, not 12. That's why it's not reading the way I thought it did. Matthew 16, verse 23. Jesus began to show them that he is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. He is going to be killed. And Peter looks at him and says, oh, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 40. Jesus is literally hanging on the cross. He is literally in the process of dying. And in verse 40, those passing by derided, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in in three days. Save yourself. Watch this. If you are the son of God. That sound familiar? Yes. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, then cast yourself from the temple. Beloved, Jesus is the son of God. And because of that, he didn't fall for any of them. He stayed on the cross. He died the sinner's death. And he rose three days later so that his righteousness can be placed on your account by faith. So is there an example here, and I'm out of time, but are there examples here of how to resist temptation? Yes, of course there are. He uses the scripture. He has scripture memorized. He, he, he uses scripture that is in comparison to the issues that he's facing. He did, you know, I really wanted to go into all of those things, but I can't. But I do want to say this, beloved, that if you are here this morning and you are trying to go to heaven, you are trying to be saved by being good enough, I want you to understand that it will never be enough. But the whole point of this battle, the whole point of this war that Jesus has just won is, so, is because he as the true King of Israel, as the true Messiah, and as our God, he is fighting our battle with sin for us. And he has won. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated the grave. He has defeated hell and damnation. He has defeated all of it so that you and I can have life in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will put your faith in him and him alone. 
And if you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you this morning and show you how you can. Our Father, we thank you so much for these wonderful truths. We thank you that you have fought our battles for us. Lord, on our own, we can never win. On our own, we are so, so desirous of sin. We, we sin because we love it. And so often we love it more than we love you. We have all failed at this point, but Lord Jesus, you succeeded. You passed the test. And now because of that, we can place our faith in you, in you alone. And if there's one here this morning who hasn't done that, Lord, I pray this would be the morning that you draw them to yourself. That they would not even be able to enjoy their lunch until they get this right. I want to ask you to stand. And if you're here this morning and perhaps you're caught in one of these patterns of sin, perhaps you are here and, and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're just here and you want to pray. You want to ask yourself the question, what do I love more? Do I love my life more? Or do I love Jesus more? And maybe you need to ask that question for yourself this morning. What am I willing to sin to get? And what am I willing to sin for if I don't get? I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads as the musicians play and just, and just reflect on that. What do you love? What is your greatest love? Jesus told the Ephesians church, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Calvary Baptist Church, would Jesus tell us that this morning? That we have left our first love as a church. Or can we truly say that we love Christ more? More than what? Name it. Do we love Christ more? Only you can answer that question in your own heart. I pray you will.